Hi, I'm Lordy. Hi, I'm Sim. And I'm Tammy. And together we're Our New Normal. The Our New Normal podcast explores how to change our environment for the better as we journey into the new normal. Join us for conversations among friends and experts in the fields of environmental toxins, psychology, health and spiritual health. As building biologists and low-tox coaches, we are seeking to empower others to find clarity amongst the confusion. Welcome to episode two. Today we chat with the nutritionist, the filmmaker of What's With Wheat, best-selling author, international and TEDx speaker, and founder of Changing Habits and the Functional Nutrition Academy. Yes, you guessed it. Today we are excited to be chatting with Cindy O'Meara. Cindy is a passionate, determined, and highly educated speaker on health issues and uses her education and experience to help others improve their quality of life so they too can enjoy greater health and longer lives. She is not your typical nutritionist and driven by a concern for our health system and the lack of educated consumers, Cindy explores relevant and sometimes confronting issues and asks people to make a personal informed choice about what they are willing to consume. She educates people on how to read food labels, why diets don't work and how drugs can affect your total well-being and vitality. Her groundbreaking book, Changing Habits, Changing Lives, in 1998 became an instant bestseller and its accompaniment, Changing Habits, Changing Lives cookbook. In our chat today, Cindy shares how she has grown a successful organic food company and the makings of her farm, a 60-acre organic food bowl, which will be used as an education center for sustainable and regenerative farming practices. We enjoyed today's chat with the lively, genuine and warm Cindy O'Meara, and we hope that you do too. So let's get into it. Cindy, thank you so much for joining us today. We're really excited to have you with us. Um, we've got an additional number three sitting in there with Tammy who may pop up every now and again, but that's our reality and I suppose the reality of all of us working at home. So um, thank you for joining us. Thank um, you. I'm looking forward to this chat. You know, you don't get to chat to a bunch of girls, so it's, it's good fun. <laughs> Especially during this isolation period, oh, yeah. no one's really had a chance to chat with some girls. So um, while it's still not in person, it's great to have you on the screen. So um, I first came across Changing Habits about actually the year you launched because of my own personal journey. I had my first husband was diagnosed with cancer at that stage and we were looking at what could we do. And for me, food was the first place I went um, and that was how I came across your book and changing our lifestyles. And you grew up in a family that was really focused on food as well, a farming family and um, using food as medicine. And how did that, would you like to share with everyone how that sort of um, informed your journey? Well, if we go back to my mother's family, so she was the oldest of 11, farming family, corn farmers, um, back in 1937. So this was before uh, round, oh, not Roundup, DDT came in. And my grandfather was a corn farmer. Um, I also had uncles who were pig farmers. So I was across the board. And I remember my grandfather, um, I don't remember it, but my mother told me this, that when DDT came in, he said, this is the end of farming. We are in real strife if we continue to use chemicals. So first they used arsenic of lead, which is arsenic and lead, but it was called arsenic of lead. They used that first and they used DDT and he was so totally against it. And because he was, um, he lost his farm because he had seven boys, six had hemophilia. 
So we're the largest hemophilia family in the world. But he, so he lost his farm and he had a two acre block, which he fed a family of 11 on. He was incredible. So in the winter, there's no um, food that can be grown because it's snow. So six months of the year, they lived out of what my grandmother preserved and put in the basement. So then when mum, you know, started cooking for us, I don't think food was seen as food as medicine. It was just that's the way it was. Mum made everything from scratch. She had flour, sugar, salt, baking powder, and chocolate and made everything from those things, you know, with her nuts and her seeds. Her pantry was tiny. Everything was an individual ingredient. But I think more so that while mum was an incredible cook, my father had um, an, an incredible knowledge of the human body. So he was a pharmacist, didn't like pharmacy, didn't like what was happening in the 50s. Um, didn't like the amount of medications he was giving older people. No young people were getting medications back then. This is like 70 and 80 year olds were, you know, on one medication. And then he realized that there was a side effect to that one. And then they'd have to go on a second one and a third and a fourth. And he thought, I don't really like this. And he remembers one of his um, clients was not coming in and he ran into him in the streets and he was taking Pepto-Bismol. So he had poor indigestion and he goes, you know, Joe, why haven't you been in to get your Pepto-Bismol? And he goes, oh, the quack up the road fixed me. I don't have any indigestion anymore. And the quack up the road was a chiropractor. <laughs> so my dad went and saw the quack up the road and he started to do, he decided he wanted to be a chiropractor. So went to the USA where he met mum and became a chiropractor. So when we look at health, there are two ways to look at it. We can look at it mechanistically. So mechanism means where we look at the parts of the body. We go down to the atom. We figure out the cells. We want to know, you know, how it all works. And if you've got heart disease, you go to your cardiologist. If you've got rheumatoid arthritis, you go to someone who um, can help you with your joints, um, a rheumatologist. If you've got um, a psychiatry issue, you go to a psychiatrist. That's mechanism. And mechanism is really important when it comes to emergency medicine. So if I have uh, been in a car accident and I go to the hospital and they go, can you tell me about your diet and uh, how are your connections going and what's your family life like and what's your environment like? You don't want them asking those questions. You want them fixing you up. So that's mechanism. But then dad went from mechanistic um, healthcare to vitalistic healthcare where he realised that the whole body and the environment were very important for health. And it has its innate intelligence. And as long as we give it the right resources, good food, sunshine, movement, connection, and, you know, sleep, all of those wonderful ingredients, as long as we give the body those ingredients and stop interfering with it, or take the interference away, which was chiropractic, you know, making sure the nervous system was working right, then we could be the complete expression of health. And so this is how I was brought up. So we were not vaccinated. We were not allowed any antibiotics, we're not, unless it was an emergency. We were allowed antibiotics. We weren't allowed any painkillers. My dad would say, your body knows what to do. Do what you think you need to do in order to be well. If you want to eat, eat. If you don't want to eat, don't. If you want to sleep, sleep. If you don't, don't. If you want to go out in the sunshine, go out in the sunshine. So as a young child, I was given that opportunity to, to get a really strong immune system, 
by letting my body deal with whatever was happening and tapping into that intuitiveness of what my body needed. So if there was no painkillers given and I was in pain and, you know, the first pain we are given as children by nature is our teeth erupting. And what does a mother do? And that's because that's what we're told to do, Bongello. You know, and to ease that pain. But that pain is there to help that child deal with bigger pains in life. So what my dad also taught was that you have everything you need inside you. But what do we do now? We go to somebody to get something to take something away. As opposed to, well, what is it that my body needs right now? Sunshine sleep, connection, love, food, broths, you know, whatever it is, and we just don't do that. Um, and so being brought up in a very, very different lifestyle, a vitalistic lifestyle, of course, brought my kids up the same way. So they were also brought up without, and I don't know what your stand is on vaccines, but I'm telling you that's this is what I was, this is what I was told to be brought up like, you know, no vaccines, no antibiotics, no Panadols. So I'm 60 this year without an antibiotic, you know, probably in our food supply, I've probably taken them, but not a, a medication. Um, and I've never taken a painkiller despite broken bones because I learned, the body learned how to deal with pain. Now, if I'm in an emergency situation where I need a painkiller, I'm going to take it. I'm not that stupid. But the thing is, is that that will probably work really well for me as opposed to someone who's been taking them every day for their whole life, when they really need it, there's gonna be trouble. So I, I know that was a long and long-winded intro, but I feel it's important that we, we see where you know, we're going here. No, that was brilliant and <laughs> love it. And I love that you expanded on that because while we're familiar with your story, a lot of people may not be. So I think you've set the stage beautifully to, to move into the next part, you know, how did we get so far away from our natural, what should be our natural way of living and the way you were brought up, which is amazing, to where we are today? How did, how did this all go so pear-shaped in sort of 50 years? I think it's a slow erosion and it's the one pill wonder. So when it came to agriculture, all of a sudden you had DDT that would kill the pests. You had arsenic and lead that would kill the locusts. You had herbicides that would kill the, um, the weeds. All of a sudden it was like, oh my gosh, I don't have to do the, what the right practices are, which means keep the soil strong, put, put the right minerals in, rotate. I can have harvest after harvest after harvest. I just need to put fertilizer in and do this. So that started in agriculture. And then if we leap forward, well, even to the 50s and 60s, actually 30s, you know, we started to live in um, not so much urban communities, but more city communities. So live within the cities, electric light bulb came on, we were able to stay up late, um, mechanisation started, information society started. We were more interested in putting stuff into our brain as far as information goes, instead of thinking about what we were putting into our body. And then it became convenient. The grocery store, I think 1948, the first grocery store happened in America. I lived in a small country town in Bendigo. Our first grocery store happened in the 70s. We had a tiny little shop that we could go to, 
But Coles or Woolies opened around then. That's when McDonald's opened. That's when Kentucky Fried Chicken opened. So we went from the information age of learning how to manipulate chemicals in order to preserve foods instead of using the old-fashioned ways. And then it just became something that, well, it's convenient to go to the shop and buy something. And then, you know, like I did, I did a post on Instagram yesterday um, and it was about eggs. So it was about fake eggs. And this is where we've gotten to. And, and I watched the video of these fake eggs of this company and they were earnest in what they were saying, you know, this is the way we're going to save the planet. Food's bad for you. You know, this is what we should be eating. And then you read the ingredients, you go to the patents of the ingredients and you realize those ingredients are being made by genetically modified microbes mm. or made in a chemical laboratory. What scares me about this, this is how far away from nature we have become, is that what scares me about it is that people are being fooled by the chemical industry, not by the food manufacturers, because they know no different. They want to make a product, they're told, try this flavour, put this acidity regulator in here, let's throw this colour in here, oh, you need a thickener. This will make the food cheap and you won't be killing animals or something like that, you know? Yeah. So I think it's been a progression. I've watched it since the 80s because that's when I was really alerted to it when I started to do nutrition. And it has not gotten any better. You know, my first book, Changing Habits, Changing Lives, was this thin. Lab to table is like getting thicker because what's happening, yeah, lab to table, it's gotten thicker because more and more is happening. I could write three more chapters since I put that out at the beginning of the year, you know, like it's just come out. <laughs> and I could put another three more chapters in it. And, and so what I do is I write blogs and put that on. So I think it's the one pill wonder. But what the one pill wonder has done is where we are right now. So I guess people know that some people, you know, um, they'll do these interviews and then not put them out for three or four months. I don't know what's happening, but we're in COVID-19 as we are speaking about this now. Our disconnect with nature is, is and, and our, our belief in our immune system is sadly missing. And the belief is that a vaccine is going to save us. But if it's all about health, why are we not making healthy eating? The number one thing we should be doing is creating, like starting with regenerative agriculture and eating proper foods. Get rid of the takeaway places. They should be closed down. The only places that should be open are people who are making real foods. I know half the people might starve but because they're not used to this. But, and I actually think it's been a slow progression and it, it, it happened with the change from maybe the agricultural society into the information society and now we're into the chemical, you know, boom. Yeah, yeah, no, we, we definitely, we're all on the same page with that and um, we, we are definitely in agreement. And, you know, our own immune system, you just said it earlier about learning how to deal with your pain. Your body knows what to do. And there's a whole probably, we decided there's probably three or four podcasts with you. There's that many, that's much information in there, but... This is a great overview for people to start listening. So um, thank you. Yeah. 
It's really interesting, Cindy, that you mentioned about we're in COVID-19 at the moment. So everybody's at home and the amount of time that everybody is on their devices is, you know, it's gone up exponentially. And it's really interesting. I find it quite astounding that when you look at food and how it affects our health, that with the internet at everyone's fingerprints, like literally at their fingertips at the moment, that and their ability to research, that there's still people that who think that margarine, sugar-laden cereals, crappy white bread are actually healthy. So what what do you think, what does a well-balanced diet look like to you? I know you've gone into it a little bit about how you were brought up, but just for the, the people today with all that marketing, what do you think today a balanced diet look, can look like? Well, one of my favourite quotes is I interviewed Dr. Natasha Campbell McBride, um, who is the uh, author of GAPS. She's a medical doctor. She's a nutritionist. She's a neurologist. She's incredible. Like, I love her. When I interviewed her, she said this to me, and I've repeated it a million times. It's time to get back into the kitchen to feed and nourish our family to heal this nation. Gives me goosebumps every time I say it. And if I'm going to take it one step further, it's time to start growing your own food in your backyard, on your veranda, whatever you've got, and then take it to the kitchen to feed and nourish your family to heal this nation. We have to have single ingredients in our pantry. We have to be very um, decisive about where we are getting those. So there are two food systems out there. There's the chemical food system, which most people are in, and then there's a regenerative farming food system where the farmer is looking after the soil, the soil grows healthy food, those healthy foods go to the market, and one person away, the farmer's taking it to the market. From the market, you go and collect your fresh fruits and vegetables, you collect your dairy and your meat, you might get some nuts and seeds because somebody's you know, imported them or got them in, you've got your herbs and your spices, Um, eggs, you know, you can go and get those. And from those ingredients, you can make thousands of recipes. My mum didn't have a pantry, yet we had the best cuisine. She spent time in the kitchen. And if you don't think that that's a priority, then you don't think the health of your children and your family is, is a priority. So for me, I spent a lot of time in the kitchen um, because that's I, like, I want to nourish my family. I want them to be healthy. I want them to have healthy children. Like I look at you, Tammy, you know, um, I've got two engaged <laughs> waiting to be married, you know, waiting for grandchildren. And I've said to them, if you can't do it, I'll be there for you. That's what grandmothers were for. We were there to help you guys, you know. And I think our community has broken down and we need to get back into a community where we're helping other people. And we're helping at least our family, you know, growing food. Um, and it's not hard to grow food. Like we've got, this is the Nutrition Academy, if anybody can read backwards. <laughs> um, in that we have this incredible edible garden course. Because I realised, you know, nutrition was always important to me. I always went to the farmer's markets. But, you know, I wasn't growing my own food until about five years ago. Um, I started to really get into earnest in growing my own food. So then I thought, well, why am I not teaching everybody else how to do this with the incredible edible garden? And then there's, you know, on to go, on to nutrition. But it is about back to basic ingredients. You do not need an enormous pantry. You do not need it. You just need those ingredients that are the basic ingredients know where your ingredients are coming from. I, I kind of call it the QPS principle. Quality of your ingredients, 
how you process those ingredients and that they're seasonal. So they're local as well. So it's the key PS, quality, processing um, and seasonal. Hmm. I think um, as you were explaining, Cindy, obviously you had the benefit of such a great family awareness and, and you know, that um, vitalistic lifestyle. So for you, it was within you, you, you just were able to implement it. I think for us three, our health journeys and those of our families have led us to where we are now with our knowledge and awareness. Um, you know, we, we all have autoimmune illnesses um, and that's something that we're keen, obviously, for our children to avoid. What, with your wheat documentary, um, perhaps if you can explain a little bit about why wheat today isn't what it used to be and why that's causing issues with health that, you know, a lot of the mainstream still deny. Yeah. Yeah, they do deny it. Well, I did anthropology through university and I knew when the agricultural revolution became a part of, um, you know, civilization. So it was probably, you know, they say about 23,000 years ago when the wheat grain appeared is what they believe. And they, they know this because of how they figure those things out. But it was called a monoploid, which means it was the first of its kind. In um, plants, we have monoploids, diploids and polyploids. So we know that a diploid means the two crop, the hybridization, natural hybridization of a wheat grain. So we know that we entered into the, the you know, probably into the food supply around 23,000 years ago. For the Australian Aboriginal people, the, um, they started eating grain, depending on who you listen to, between 60,000 to 110,000 years ago. They knew how to use grain. They knew how to process it properly. Um, and, you know, they used it to make flatbreads and all puddings and porridges. And, you know, they have known. But if we go to European, which is what we are, if we go to European civilization, it was around 23,000 years ago. The diploid happened about 17,000 years ago. And then by the time it got to spelt, spelt was a polyploid. And that was around um, probably 5,000 years ago. Then what happened in the 1970s and 1980s, there was a starving um, community, India, Pakistan, that area. And so there was a gentleman by the name of Norman Borlaug who decided to um, be able to feed these people. So he created a wheat grain by hybridising a Japanese wheat with um, a wheat out of America, which was spelt. Um, and he created triticum estivum. Um, and this was a shorter plant and um, it could be used, uh, it could be grown and then mechanistically, you know, with machines, um, it could be harvested. So the problem was because it was hybridised and because they were growing so much of it, it had a lot of pests and there was a lot of weeds and the Green Revolution started. And the Green Revolution is the beginning of DDT, the beginning of Roundup, you know, all of those things is all part of the Green Revolution. It was the chemicals that were being used on farming. There was nothing green about it. White and red had gone, so they took green. That's how they called it. So let's fast forward to 10 years ago. And I've always made everything from scratch, my breads, my muffins, my cakes, my cookies. My kids were brought up with everything made from scratch. Bought organic flowers, not realising triticum estivum was what I was buying. It wasn't spelt. 
Because in those days, this was the 80s and late 80s and 90s, we didn't know about it. Well, I didn't know about it. And we all seemed to tolerate it fairly well. Um, my husband was diagnosed as a celiac in 1995. So then I started to make him food and, you know, and it went like that. And then I hit 52 and um, I started to gain weight, slowly but surely. Saw back 18 months. My husband's a chiropractor, my father's a chiropractor, my sister's a chiropractor, you know. Saw back for 18 months. Saw right hip, tightness in my throat, couldn't grow my hair. Skin was dry, hair was dry. I was in a bit of a, a mess. But I'm still eating the same as I've always eaten. Nothing changed. But I'm thinking it's got to be food. So I just one day go, I'm going to strip everything out of my diet that I can possibly strip out of it. And I went to meat and veg and a couple of winter fruits. Because what I was doing was going back to the winter of the hunter-gatherer. Um, less food, less availability of, of sweet fruits and saturated fats and all of those. And I'm, I've got no problem with those two foods. But I just decided that I was going to clean myself out completely. So I went on a protocol that put me into a state of ketosis. So it was less calories. It's called the fat loss protocol. Um, now it is. Back then it wasn't. Um, so I went on this protocol and, oh, my, I just had, in 10 days, I lost probably six kilos, seven kilos of weight, um, clarity of mind, backache disappeared, hip, dis hip pain disappeared. Um, I, was, I was living on a high. I was on the biggest high of my life, eating very little foods, and feeling incredible. By the end of three weeks, I said, right, lost enough weight. I'm feeling brilliant. I have to start introducing foods back into the diet. So I start to introduce foods back in the diet and I'll never forget this day. Um, I was at Woodford Folk Festival. I'd taken my breakfast and my lunch. I knew what I wanted to introduce, but I stayed a little bit later than I should have. And I thought, oh, I've got to have something to eat. So I went to the vegetarian, Gopals. I think it was called Gopals. And I ate um, wheat with vegetables. So I knew the vegetables were fine, but I thought, oh, I'll just add the wheat. This will be my wheat one. Next day, wake up, 900 grams I put on. That's water weight. That is not fat weight. So I'm inflamed. My back aches back. My brain's foggy. My hip's hurting. And I just went, well, what did I eat? Wheat, I guess. So I then trialed it again a week later. Same thing happened. So I thought something's wrong with wheat. So I went on a bit of a binge on education. And what I learned, I was just um, I was so disappointed in what agriculture had done to our wheat. But it wasn't just agriculture, it was processing. So at the end of about two years of really understanding what had happened to the wheat grain, I, um, I said to my husband, I, I, I should write a book about this because it's really interesting. And he says, why don't you do a documentary? So he gave me a budget and all the people I'd learned about for the last two years, I contacted them. And um, so then I went overseas and I interviewed them. So I interviewed Vandina Shiva from India. I interviewed Natasha Campbell McBride from England. Um, I interviewed um, Rodney, um, Dr. Rodney, can't remember his last name, interviewed him from New Zealand. And then I went to America. And I interviewed everybody. And I was on my, almost my last interview. So Joel Salton was another one I interviewed. So from farmers to scientists. So Joel Salton was the next one that I interviewed. Um, sorry. I, I finished everybody and there was one more to interview. 
and it was Dr. Stephanie Seneff at MIT in Boston. And I don't know whether I was tired or what she was telling me was freaking me out, but I, I couldn't even ask her questions because her answer was always the same. And she told me that what Roundup and glyphosate does to a plant, to a human, to microbes, to everything. And she basically said, if I'm gonna put it down to anything, that we are, have digestive system problems, we can't tolerate wheat, more and more foods become more intolerant, we've got an autism epidemic, we've got an ADD, ADHD, allergies, asthma, everything epidemic. I'm gonna say that Roundup and glyphosate are the issue. And, you know, I, I had to listen to her interview. We, inter you know, we recorded it three, four, five, six, seven times. Sometimes I'd have to just listen to one little bit to comprehend the biochemical shitstorm it causes in our body and the decimation of our microbiome. And then when I found out that in Australia, they desiccate, so desiccate means dry, our wheat grain a week to two weeks before harvest, as well as canola, chickpeas, legumes, um, barley, rye. They will put this poison on our food before harvest. And people sometimes say to me, oh, well, you just have to wait three weeks. I said, no, it's not a wait three weeks. It does its damage then and there. And the damage it's doing is it cannot be washed off. You cannot change this. It will enter your body and it will cause more damage. So number one, the food will be lacking in nutrient. Number two, it will be filled with Roundup or glyphosate in parts per billion and parts per million. And what that then does to your kidneys, what it does to your microbiome, what it does to your nervous system because of what it's doing to the microbiome. And so from that day forward, I do not touch wheat. I actually don't touch many things unless I know where that food is coming from. Because if you look at the foods that have been allowed to be sprayed with Roundup, there are 70. Either around, preceding, on, if it's genetically modified and it's Roundup ready genetically modified, it's put on that. In Australia, 70 foods are allowed to be sprayed with it. There are 596 registered products with glyphosate in it here in Australia. And the people who's, who um, register it, they get paid to register it and approve it. They get paid every year annually to reapprove it and they get a percentage of sales. 596 products, all making big money. You, they're a billion dollar government agency that are funded by the chemicals companies. Yeah, no wonder they're not taking it off the market. Mm. And, and, you know, the amount of class actions that are going against Monsanto Bayer at the mm. moment, um, it, like, it's, I think they're at 50,000, 60,000 people have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma as a result of them using Roundup. Um, it's called the farmer's disease. Yeah. And, uh, like, that's what's wrong with wheat. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I went on again, but... You've got to understand the history. We never had a problem with this grain. My mum cooked with wheat every day. I had donuts, you know, cake, cookie, desserts. She made, and we never had issues. 
But now, how many people have an issue with wheat? And it's not just celiac disease. It's non-gluten sensitivity. Non yeah. It's, it's wheat allergy. It's wheat sensitivity. It's fructose malabsorption. It's fru fructans, which are the long chain of fructoses that are in wheat that you then have to go on FODMAPs for. So it is insipid. It is everywhere. And um, if anybody thinks that they can eat modern day wheat, then they're fooling themselves. They really are. Yeah. And then they're taking drugs to get rid of the pain or they're not listening to their body. Oh, uh, look, Cindy, I, I've got celiac disease and to be honest, I'm most grateful for that diagnosis, for the awareness that I now have. Um, and it always surprises me, friends, that, you know, will just acknowledge that, oh, yeah, I, I dropped wheat for a while and, geez, I felt better. I didn't get bloating. But they still can't really make that full connection to completely remove it. Um, just going back to that 70 um, um, crops that are allowed to be sprayed, where can people find that information? Well, I've done the research. It's on my, <laughs> it's on my, all of my talks that I give. Um, but I am sure if you go to um, some agricultural site, um, you could probably just go on Monsanto and just see what can I spray, how can I spray it. You know, all the information is there. Yeah. Um, you can go on to the Australian Pesticide and Veterinary Medicine Authority and they will, you can ask them the question. You can go, could you please tell me if I can spray it on my peaches, nectarines or around? They won't mm -hmm. spray it on peaches and nectarines. The one thing they will not spray it around is bananas because bananas are, are a, a herb and they will kill it it will kill the bananas. So oh, I do wow. know it's not sprayed. Well, at least that's what one banana um, person told me. But if you talk to every farmer, they will tell you. You know, you just have to talk to them. Yeah, yeah, we sprayed a week before harvest. Yeah, yeah, yeah we do it preceding. Oh, we had to get rid of the weeds because we had so much rain. We didn't know what else to do. Yeah. And like your council spray it. Your main roads spray it. You can, I am so alerted to it because I'll look, drive along a roadway and I'll just see where they've sprayed it. it. Although what's interesting is my husband and I, last July, we went on a little bit of a trip. We had a motorhome and we rented a motorhome and I'm driving along this road, or he's driving along it, and I'm like looking and I'm going, this road ran up, this road ran up. I'm sure this rang around. Anyway, it was, I couldn't believe it. So anyway, I ended up bringing council and I said, could you tell me what you've been spraying on the parks and playgrounds and roads? And he was brilliant. He said, we spray, I can't remember the name of it. I think it was Slasher or um, Bioweed or Contact Organics. It was one of the natural ones. He said, we will not use Roundup anymore. This was a council in Victoria that chose not to use it. Oh, my heart was swelled. It absolutely swelled that it wasn't Roundup. And I just said, congratulations. Thank you so much for letting me know. So, but my council still sprays it. So oh, just, yeah. Three weeks ago, three, four weeks ago, I caught them. I, I saw what they were doing and I said, what are you guys doing? And they were on the beach. On our beach, it's water soluble. So it's just gonna go through into the ocean. I swim on that beach every day. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, I saw that and you know, I did think of you and all the education and effort you've made to get that education out there and to change what's happening. Um, you know, how, how do you just stay so upbeat and focused 
when something like that just comes around and, you know, you see them spraying again and think, who's listening? Exactly. So, so that day I cried all the way home. I, I was on my push bike, had to do a photo shoot um, with the local paper. And after I'd done it, I just went, what, what am I doing? This is just a waste of time. I'm wasting my energy. But then I get my energy back and I go, oh, I know, I'll put it on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'll let the world know that they're doing it. And if they choose to say something to them or, but I did find out one of the guys, he was a lovely young man um, who I was talking to. He said to me, you know, you can put yourself on the register um, so that if they do spray, they will let you know. So I think everybody should put themselves on the register of their council to say, I'm sensitive to Roundup. I'm sensitive to Dicamba. I'm sensitive to Paquat or whatever the name of it is. And just say, I'm sensitive to chemicals. You'll have to tell me whenever you're spraying, where you're spraying. I live in this area. And I think if we all do that, <laughs> they'll soon get the hint. Look, yeah. I think of Rachel Carson, 1960s, wrote the book Silent Spring. It wasn't until 1974 before they stopped DDT. They crucified that woman. Mm. You know, she passed away. She actually died of cancer. Mm. But they crucified her for that book if if you have not read silent spring can i recommend that you read silent spring by rachel carson it's an amazing book so then in the 80s we had um a group of four scientists who wrote the book our stolen future and it was all about endocrine disruptors in our water supply and how it had gotten into the arctic circle and was causing infertility in the polar bears so if it's happening up there you can guarantee it's happening to us and then there was carrie gillam who wrote the book Whitewash. So she brought that out in, I can't remember, 2016, 17, 18, around there. She came to Australia and went to the Writers, I went to the Writers' Festival in Bendigo just to meet her. I was, I thought, what a brave woman you are because she absolutely talks about the political issues and the lies and the deceit of Monsanto around the product Roundup and glyphosate. Um, she also looks at the health as well. So Carrie Gillum's Whitewash. And then now in COVID-19, we have another hero. So these are women. Like one, some of the scientists were men in Our Skull and Future, but these are women that are speaking out. Mm-hmm. And I watched Judy Makovitz. Have you been? Mm-hmm. Beautiful yeah. Judy. So she wrote the book back in 2016 called Plague, and she just released last month Plague of Corruption. And she has been crucified for telling the truth. She has um, been made bankrupt. She's lost all ability to be a scientist. And yet she keeps speaking up. Like she's the bravest, she's my hero. Mm -hmm. She, um, Carrie Gillum, um, Rachel Carson, and all the authors of Our Stolen Future and anybody else out there that is making noise Um, you know, about what is happening. And I'm so happy that there are people out there making noise. If I don't make noise, and sometimes I do stop making noises because I need time to recoup. Um, So I was really making a lot of noise and then I was just getting hammered. And I just thought, you know what? I'm just taking a week off. I can't make that noise anymore. Get my strength back and then I'll make noise again. (laughs) (laughs) Love that. Love it, Cindy. And I think... (laughs) 
that's probably one of the reasons why um, we started doing what we're doing, you know, launching this podcast and the information because there needs to be noise. There's no link between environmental toxins, building biology and, and our food. It's just such a disconnect. So we're hoping to tie all of this in for the lay person, you know, and speak in lay terms and give them some really good info to, to work with. And hopefully we get lots more people making some noise. So, um, it's, that's, that's the thing is that once you start on this journey, you realize there are many places that you can go in order to um, find your own health. So in the, in the beginning, I think it's about just finding your own and nurturing yourself and looking after yourself. So if someone's in on this journey, don't become the activist out there overtly, but become the activist in your own home. So number one, the food that you choose is the most silent form of activism I've ever seen. So instead of going to that, the, the food system that I talked about that is chemicals and biotechnology and using GMs and, you know, all of that stuff, going away from that and going to your local farmer's market and being really particular about the foods that you're consuming just for you and your family is a form of activism. By going into your home and not so much building biology, but the chemicals that you are using. So from your laundry room to your kitchen, to the garage, to um, under your bathroom sink, um, your makeup, all of those things, that is a form of activism by buying from a local lady that's making an incredible product instead of buying from a, you know, a, a firm that makes a cheap product, but spends a million dollars on a model, you know, like that to me, I hate it. Actually, I will not purchase from them. So I'll purchase from my local, you know, person that can, that's making their own moisturizers from local products or, you know, like beeswax and shea butter. And I don't know where shea comes from. I don't know if that's local, but there's a, you know, from oils, olive oils that are, are being done here. So I'm very much into that as well. And then what am I spraying on my lawn? You know, then you, you ring the council and you say, I'm sensitive when you're spraying, let me know and do not spray on my, my sidewalk or on my thing. This is activism at its highest form. And then if you want to tell your neighbour, tell your neighbour. This is what I'm doing, you know. And, and people do. They look at you and they go, I want what she's got. I want to know what she's doing. And so they ask a question. And you just give them the answer that they want, you know. It, it, it was like baby time. And I, I look at you, Tammy, because I love baby time. <laughs> when, I, when I was pregnant with my first child, it was very different to when my mother was pregnant. So, you know, my mum had legs in stirrups. Dad wasn't allowed in there. Um, that was the way we were all born, that way, you know, and, and in a hospital. But by the time I was um, pregnant with my first child, which was the late 80s, I had started to learn about home births and um, birthing centres and, you know, those types of things. But I had to ask the questions. And this is how the only way you are going to get the good answers, being a critical thinker with everything that they say to you. So I remember my first visit. I hope you don't mind me going here. No. So my first visit with the doctor, because I thought, well, you have to go to a doctor, don't you? That's what you got to do. And I get in there, legs are spread, arms up my, you know, wazoo, 
and I feel violated, completely violated. I wasn't asked. I didn't know this would happen. I was given a blood test. I was told I was obviously immunised against um, uh, German measles, which I wasn't. I'd already obviously had it, but I didn't, you know, I've got the antibodies to it, the lifelong antibodies to it. And that day I went, no way, no one's going to do anything to me unless I ask questions first and they get their permission. So I quit the doctor and I went to a birthing centre. And I'll never forget this. I was about six and a half, seven months pregnant. And I said, right, this is the birth plan. This is how we're going to do it. Nothing's going to change. And she says to me, yep, everything, Cindy, but you'll get um, Sintametrin and your baby will get Kanakian. Excuse me? What's Kanakian and what's Sintametrin? So this is something that they would do to you but not tell you that they were doing it to you. You just get an injection in the leg and then the baby would get an injection. And I went, I don't understand what that is. Why do I need that? And they said to me, well, Sintametrin is oxytocin and you'll need that. And I said, well, I'm going to breastfeed. Why would I need that? You know, I'd done science. I knew. So I said, no, I won't be having Sintametrin. And they said, all right, well, that's your choice. I said, well, what's this Kanakian stuff? And they said, well, that's vitamin K. Babies don't have enough vitamin K. And I went, now I'm from a, a home. I'm from a home where this is an innate intelligence. It knows what to do. Give it the right resources and it'll be fine. So I said, well, why does it need vitamin K? Oh, because of hemorrhagic disease. Well, what's hemorrhagic disease, you know? So you keep asking and asking the questions. So then I didn't know anything about it. So I thought, well, I better go and learn about this. So I went to Monash University, uh, sorry, La Trobe University, um, because I was a student, went to La Trobe University and I started to research. And um, I figured out that when the hemorrhagic disease started was when antibiotics was starting to be given, which means you were killing the microbiome. Therefore, the vitamin K that the microbiome was making was probably not there. And perhaps our um, green leafy vegetables did not have vitamin K in it. So I went, I eat green leafy vegetables. I've never had an antibiotic. I'm cool. So I went back seven and a half months and I gave her, I wrote a paper on it. And I said, here's the paper. I've, I'm not doing the Kanakian and this is the reason why. And they didn't accept the paper. Oh. I had to sign my child's life away. That I would take full responsibility for my child if it died. And I said, fine, give me it. <laughs> and I signed it. So this is, mamas are vulnerable. They're so vulnerable. And I learned that lesson by that doctor, the how vulnerable I was. And I went, not on my watch. And so then, I, and, and so then I become a critical thinker about everything, not just Kanakian and Sintametrin, then there was vaccinations. So I kind of went, what's in the vaccine? I want to know the ingredients in my food. I'm going to find out what the ingredients in the vaccination are. Polysorbate 80, aluminium adjuvant, thimerosal. And I went, no, that won't be going into my baby. <laughs> so, yeah. what, you know, what's your view on the, um, the labelling anti-vax which <laughs> i just find so offensive when you ask as you say critical questions and dig deep you know how how do, how do we counter that what is yeah your um thought? well the world health organization says that anti-vax vax is a very derogatory term and the world health organization in their 2019 december so that wasn't that long ago um safety 
um, symposium or Congress, whatever they did, said that they are not safe. And this is where the problem lays. These people have genuine, genuine concerns. And this is the World Health Organization saying this. So to say that it's um, derogatory, people just haven't got that memo yet. So a lot of people now call themselves pro-choice or non-vaxxers. I'm not an anti, you can do it if you want, I don't care. You take your responsibility for yourself. But for me, I'm not, I do actually do care. I do care for those babies. I've seen like, I've seen a baby die within 24 hours of a vaccine and told it was SIDS. This is one of my best friend's child who thought I was wacky, thought I was a bit of a witch, thought I was a little bit of a hippie because I didn't vaccinate my children. And her baby passed away 24 hours later after um, his 16 months MMRs and whatever they give him, I don't know what it was. And um, three months later, she came to me and she said, Cindy, um, you know something, I'm pregnant, I'm not going through that again. And so I gave her all the information. Like, I can't tell people what to do. I'm not, I'm, I think I'm more of an expert than a lot of doctors probably. You know, they're not given, they're not given the education I've been given with the ingredients, with the safety studies. I'm sure they've never even read a safety study that shows that there never has been a safety study done with a saline solution vaccine. It's always done in comparison with another vaccine or it's done with all the adjuvants and all the um, excipients within the vaccine without the bug or without the attenuated virus or attenuated bacteria or whatever they do with those things. So, you know, when people, like, because my information's there, if someone wants to talk to me in a civil manner um, about it, I'll talk to them. I'll give them all the information that I can. Um, I will never, ever advise. Just like I don't expect them to advise me because I've done that research. So... Um, to be called an anti-vaxxer, I don't really care, but I think it's a derogatory term, as the World Health Organization says it is, and they know that the safety isn't there. They know the safety studies aren't there. And, and these were women speaking at the World Health Organization. And if you, anybody wants to see this, you just go to Del Big Tree's um, High Wire on YouTube, and you've got to search back quite a bit probably December, um, and I think it's called I Can Against the CDC. I think it's called that. Um, and if you go to around the 35, 36-minute mark, you will then show, it will then talk about all the studies that the CDC have for qualifying the safety of a vaccine. And he goes through every single safety study that they've done, um, and he shows there is no... Um, gold standard um, placebo studies done. It was done on one vaccine and that was the HPV um, and it was 300 people in the experiment and um, so they had three, three groups. One was a saline placebo, the other one was all the adjuvants and excipients and the other one was a complete vaccine. And um, the, 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 the placebo that was not the saline they all got autoimmune diseases at 2.4% within six months of the vaccine and all these other things. The one, the saline solution people, nothing. No problems, no issues, no nothing. Do you know what they did? They dismissed those 300 in the placebo group 
And um, Robert Kennedy, um, who's an environmental um, lawyer in the US, is, has successfully sued Merck for lying on the insert about um, the 300 um, women that had the saline solution vaccine. It wasn't even a vaccine, it was just a bit of salt put into their veins or into their body. So uh, most pro-choice um, families, parents, people, are very well educated. More like I, I, I saw a, a thing on Facebook yesterday. My brother put something up, and um, somebody was giving him a really hard time. And he says it's a one in a million, you know, things that happen. And and I went. So that means in Australia, there are twenty five million people here. That means there's only twenty five injuries to vaccine. Well, I know three best friends. Three injuries to vaccine. All dead. So please don't tell me that lie. Yeah. Don't pull that statistic on me when if I know three, then where are the other 22? Do, do, you, do you know anyone that's had a vaccine injury? Yeah, see, one, everybody knows somebody who or many people know someone, but then it's dismissed as, as something else. So um, for me, I want to know the ingredients of everything from the food that's in, in my pantry to the makeup I'm putting on my face. I want to know it. So of course I'm going to know what medication ingredients are, whether it's a vaccine or something I'm going to throw in my mouth. <laughs> I have to tell you a story. Have you got time for a story? Absolutely. Okay, so my daughter, um, she was about two and she got a really bad infection on her finger because she used to pick away at it. And she got this really big red lump and we were going out in the bush and I was really worried about it. So my husband said, look, just take it to the doctor, let them check it and make sure it's okay. So I take it to this doctor in a random town in Queensland somewhere and she looks at it and she's, oh, yeah, we'll have to give her antibiotics. I said, why? She goes, well, it's an infection, you need antibiotics. And I went, um, okay, really? She goes, well, the infection could spread to the, to the palm and then it could spread up her arm and she could lose her arm. This is what she tells our mother. So I went, all right, give me the antibiotics. Give me the script, you know. So I go to the pharmacist. I say to the pharmacist, I go, so I just want the antibiotic. I don't want the colour. I don't want the sugar. I don't want all the things that go with the antibiotic. And he looks at me weird like and he goes, but that's how it comes. It's really bitter tasting and revolting and your daughter won't take it. And I went, are you serious? You can't give me an antibiotic without colours and sugars and flavour. Because I read the ingredients. And he says, no, I can't. So I ended up taking the script just in case because I was scared out of my wits, you know, as if I believed it. But you kind of go, oh. Um, and then, um, and, you know, of course, we never used it because she was fine. Within a couple of days, it had absorbed back into her body and she was back a good again. But it was just because we were going out back. If we hadn't been going out back, I probably would never have thought about it. And it's because we were going camping and, and we, yeah, anyway. Love it. Brilliant story. Brilliant. Um, I'm going to change tact a little bit. Um, I'd like to chat about regenerative farming. And you raised that a little bit earlier. And there's a lot of people that have no idea what that is. Mm. We've got a couple of heroes worldwide. Joel Salatin and Polyface Farm are the most obvious. And, Zach Bush, who I can say we're all in love with and most of the planet, even the men are all in love with Zach Bush. And 
they're, they're really raising awareness worldwide. But along the East Coast, we've got a number of women working in that space. I know we, Tammy and I, get a CSA box down in Dalesford from um, Angelica Organic Farm. And those guys, Derry and Tim, are amazing what they're doing out there. We've got Tammy Jonas down here working with the pigs and in farming. And she actually, I don't know if you're aware of her, she went and became a butcher. She's got a butcher's license, so she, she wants to slaughter her animals in a particular way. She set up an alliance. Um, so she's really done some, some amazing things. And this was a woman that was a vegetarian. And again, I think like all of us, our journey takes us from being vegetarian or eating in a particular way to understanding real food and what our bodies need from an ancestral point of view. Um, and you've also got Hannah Plummer up in Bathurst and they've just started a regenerative farm up there. So would you please share with us um, what regenerative farming is, why, you know, we need to sequester carbon and, you know, look at our soil ecology and I'll leave that to you to explain so eloquently. Yeah, I'd love to. So we um, take our soil with us. So it's the microbiome, it's our gut, um, it does all sorts of wonderful things for our body. So we actually take our soil with us. But then there's the soil that the plants need to have with them in order for them to be healthy. And that soil is a similar ecology to ours. There's molds and fungies and bacteria and viruses and parasites and it's all in that soil. But what we've done is that we have sterilised that soil and by the use of um, Roundup being one, Dicamba, 2,4-D, Agent Orange, you know, um, DDT, uh, you know, the list goes on with the amount of chemicals, organophosphates. So we've actually absolutely decimated the soil ecology. And as a result, we're decimating the soil we carry with us as well. Regenerative farming is about bringing that soil back to life. And when you decimate the life of a soil, you lose the ability for that soil to grow healthy plants. Therefore, you have to use more inputs in order to get that plant to grow um, and pests not to eat it and for you to be able to harvest it. So when you destroy the soil, also you don't, the carbon is not taken in, water runs off it. So if you look at a farm that has been, um, they use chemical agriculture, if it rains, the water runs off muddy because it takes all the soil with it. But if you look at a regenerative farming uh, plot, the water runs off clear if it runs off at all because it not only sequesters all the carbon it possibly can, um, and they've measured this percentage-wise. The more microbes in there, the more plant life in there, the more carbon it sequesters, but it also holds water. So I have a regenerative farm um, and last winter, it was a terrible winter because there was no rain. Our farm stayed green, lots of grass for our cows. We have a barbed wire fence between our neighbours and us. They don't do regenerative farming. Um, they were brown, they had thistle, it looked like a desert. And I've taken a photo of it because it's quite incredible that when we do regen farming, we hold water, we hold carbon, therefore, and our microbes grow, our worms increase, we see fungi come up. And basically, regenerative farming is about looking at the soil. If you, your soil in your gut is dead, you're dead, you're gone. 
if the soil in the ground is dead because it's got no microbes, it is dead. There is, it won't grow anything. It becomes desertified. So it's almost like we've had this incredible revolution of understanding that we have to nurture the microbes in our gut and we have to nurture the microbes in the soil. And we do that using animals. So we have cows and chickens and we have these amazing birds that are free. They're not in a pen. Um, they're free. That our cows um, move around like a, a herd would have moved around in Africa on the plains. But we do it with electric fencing. So we, we move them into lots of grass. They eat, they poo, they wee. We move them on to the next lot of grass. They poo, they eat, they wee. We move them on, they poo, they eat, they wee. And they're fertilizing the land. They're munching down the grass. They're creating um, litter. And the litter is what then um, creates more nutrients. And then the chickens come through and they love the poo. And they, they pick out all the little bugs out of it. And then they scatter the poo everywhere. And on our farm, when the chickens go through, you'd never know a cow's been there because it is so well done the way they just scatter it. So then on top of that, you then start to plant plants. So we plant fruit trees. Um, so we have tree lanes now where we plant fruit trees and vegetables and um, um, herbs and, you know, everything grows along there. So we fertilise the land. It took us four years to do. And now what we're doing is growing lots and lots and lots of food without pesticides, without herbicides, without Roundup, without any chemicals. But as in medicine, and I need to tell you this, as in medicine, if we're in an emergency and we have to use something to save an animal's life, we will. Yeah. And we've had to do that first time ever in five years. So we had our beautiful bull die and we had another cow die and it ended up being red, red water, they call it. Um, it's a tick fever. Um, and we had, we had to use something to save the rest of the cows. So that is the first time we've ever done that. Um, and, and like we, we, we probably could have done something else, but we were in an emergency situation and that's when this works. Yeah. This stuff works in an emergency. I was, I was devastated, absolutely devastated. And my son looked at me, he's the farmer and he said, mom, you can't even stand when a cow dies, you know? If they all die, you will be, but if Alice dies, what are you going to be like? Alice is my, my girl. And I went, oh, I, I, I cried when Bruce died. It took me a week to get over it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, you know, this is an emergency we were in and we had to um, use something that would help our, our, our cows. So as in, in, in regenerative farming, if you're in that situation, that's when you're thankful and that's when it works. But if you're using it over and over and over again, then, you know, the animals get sick. You've got to use more stuff. But when you, you know, when you've got to do it. So um, it's vitalistic. Remember we talked about vitalism and mechanism. So basically regenerative farming is vitalism in farming and mechanism is, is the way we've been doing it. And we realised that, I, I think I heard a statistic and it might have been Zach, Laddie, I'm not sure. Um, but Zach said we have 60 harvests left. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that was when he spoke in Melbourne. Yeah. yeah. And when he said that, I went, well, that could be 60 years or could be 30 years, depending on how many times these we do it. If we do two a year, then we've only got 30 years left of food availability if we don't start this regen farming. 
In Australia, we've got Charlotte Smessy, who wrote the book Call of the Reed Warbler. We've got Bruce Pascoe, who wrote the book um, Dark Emu. We have Charlie Arnott, who is on Instagram and is starting a docu-series called Soil. We are Soil or something like that. So I've just named a couple. We've got RCS. We've got Terry McCosker. We've got... Bruce Baker. Juice Baker. Oh, Juice, my favourite man. Just, we've got used and we've got, like, I'm just kind of, and you've said a couple of women. Um, we've got Darren Doherty. Yeah. Um, I just did a webinar with Darren and Graham. I don't know what Graham's last name is, in Tasmania. So these are the people that are creating a revolution. And, you know, people are looking at our block and wondering what we're doing on 60 acres. It's only 60 acres. But everybody's wondering, the council are wondering, like we've had the council come and say, what are you doing, you know? <laughs> Tell us how you're doing this. And they're helping us regenerate our riparian area. So getting rid of the privet and starting to put natives in. So the koalas um, have a corridor through our land. Well, that'll be the day I can hardly wait. So we're planting 300 um, gum trees. That's our aim over the next 12 months is to, to get those 300 gum trees and plant them so that the koalas have that. So region farming is working with the microbes and the soil and making sure it's living and not dead. And, and when you need chemicals, you need them, but it, you, 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 you only use them in emergency situations, like, yeah. uh, like our healthcare. Yeah, and I, and I think that's exactly the point that everyone, I think, needs to become aware of, that, you know, that preventative um, aspect doesn't need this stuff and is causing the long-term issues. Um, with the regenerative farming, organic farming, obviously, um, along the same veins, you know, it takes seven years for um, no chemicals to be found on the land. Um, I think that's right. Um, what challenges did you face with regards to your property? What challenges are we facing? <laughs> it's continuous. So, um, oh, there's a big difference between regen farming and organic. Mm -hmm. Organic is certified. Um, you are allowed to use uh, some sorts of chemicals, but they have to be, um, you know, regulated by the organic, um, whoever the, the regulators, whoever they are. We didn't go down uh, the organic regulation because we wanted to be more regenerative. Mm -hmm. um, so we, uh, we bought it, well, I bought it. My husband kind of said, yeah, all right, whatever you want, Cindy. Um, no, we bought it um, April 6th, 2 p.m. 2015. So, yes. Can I cut in? Sorry, I know I'm cutting in, but you probably know what I'm going to ask you. In amongst all of this, continue on, but can you then share exactly that date and how that came about? Yeah. Why don't I share that first and then I'll talk about our problems that we face all the time. It's so much fun, I tell you. Great. Um, you guys have to hear this. Yeah. So um, probably uh, when I went to America and I hiked through the Colorado Rockies for two months without seeing towns, I would go and get supplies and then come out again. I got a real want to live in nature and to grow my own foods. And like, I, I could have probably stayed in the Colorado Rockies for the rest of my life. Um, but I decided I wanted a farm. And so I wrote it down that I was going to have a farm. 
And then I came back and went back to university, met a chiropractor, married a chiropractor, moved to the beach and never got my farm. And so I'm 60 this year. I got my farm at 55. But it got more of an urgency as I got older that I needed land and I wanted land and I almost had 50 acres and then my husband said, no, we don't want to do that. You know, no, 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 we don't want to do that. So I just kind of, you know, and, and I am the creative director of this whole marriage and he's the managing director. <laughs> so I'm the, woo, let's go do this. And then he goes, oh. <laughs> so um, we... Um, I went to, I went to a, um, a conference in England. I was speaking at a conference and I listened to this lady by the name of Michelle Nielsen and she'd written a book called Manifesting Matisse. And I listened to her, I bought her books, I bought all those CDs, I bought everything from her and I came home and I read the book and I did the 10 steps to manifesting. And in, in a very short period of time, what I'd manifested, which was only small, came about. I went, ooh, I might try something a bit bigger. And I manifested it and I got that. And I manifested the next thing and I got that. So she was doing a conference in Greece and I decided I wanted to go to that conference in Greece and do a week with her. So I flew to Greece with my daughter, Casey. We hiked all through Spain and then oh, we had a wonderful time and then ended up in Greece and did a week of manifesting. And I manifested my farm. So I said, it is July 31st, 2015, and I have 50 acres in the hinterland of the Sunshine Coast. And then you don't just manifest, you've got action steps, you've got everything you've got to do. And it got to December 2014, and I'm thinking, I better do something. So I start looking for land. Anyway, I'm not going to go through how I went for the land and everything like that. Anyway, I found this block of land. It's 60 acres, not 50 acres, but it's 60 acres on the Sunshine Coast in the hinterland, and we purchased it. Um, I watched it look like Jurassic Park for the first year. It just turned into Weed City, as I thought it was. And everybody I got in wanted me to spray Roundup. Everybody. Until I met the beautiful Marag Gamble, who came up to my farm and just said, this is paradise. And I said, what about these weeds? She said, they're not weeds, they're opportunists. They're just fixing the land, they're putting in minerals, they're sending down roots, they're trying to get water trapped in. They're doing what they're meant to be doing because you've rested this land for a year. She said, you have some ideas that you can do. And so she suggested me leasing out parts of my land to people who knew what they were doing because I didn't know anything. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing or to get a consultant in that could help us do what we were doing. So we hired a consultant for two years. Um, my, my son went to work on the farm and, um, you know, I thought we made mistakes with things, but I realise now everything seems to be coming. Like everything that I put on my manifesting is now all eventuating. And it must have been like the planet was waiting for, for, like I wanted, you know, like now, 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 let's get it done now. But no, the planet was waiting for whatever is happening for these people to come out of the woodwork that are now a part of my farm, that are working on my farm free, free. Like I'm not even paying them. They just want to be on my farm. They want to be a part of the farm. They, you know, they, they take the food from the farm because I have so much food. It's ridiculous. Um, so I needed to get, get rid of it some way. So they just come and they, 
I don't know, it's just one of the most incredible places that, that I've created. I still think I'm making mistakes, like the back paddock looks like a weed city at the moment. Um, but what I'm doing, as Mariah said, we've rested that back paddock and we, we're now just nurturing it in, in readiness for it now to be nurtured like we nurtured the top 20 acres. So, um, yeah, I, 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 like, you, you, think, you think you make mistakes all the time. So one of the mistakes we thought we made was that we didn't do an orchard, but instead we put fruit trees on swales. And, you know, I'd have people come up and go, what the hell was he thinking, you consultant? Um, but now I understand it was just part of the plan. I just had to trust in the process, had to trust that what that consultant told me to do was part, even though it may not have been the best thing, it actually is the best thing now. Because what we've created is these things called tree lanes and people have adopted tree lanes. So they adopt a tree lane, they look after the trees, they grow their own food under the trees, they can pick the food, fruit from the trees, they can grow their vegetables, they nurture our trees for them to have food. In, and, and now it's called the adopt a tree lane. So if I had an orchard, I would never have done this adopt a tree lane. I've had a market gardener come and say, five years, no chemicals, um, the way you've nurtured your land, I really want to grow food on your land. Um, I'll pay you and um, I'm, I'm going to help out my local community agricultural box, so, which is um, Good Harvest, Mick, um, Mick and Kelly, Dan. Um, so, you know, like, I don't know, it's just um, my son um, under the big old fig tree uh, over the weekend uh, proposed to his long-term girlfriend. Oh, my God, I cried. <laughs> <laughs> my kids are getting married on that farm. Um, you know, the nutrition summit, they all want to come to my farm. They don't want to go anywhere else. They just want to come to the farm and see what we're doing. And, and uh, you know, the nutrition summit may not happen this year because of everything, because I can't get Zach here. I'm not having Zach on a film. I'm no. on Zach live. <laughs> so it may not happen. We, we, we don't know, but we're pretty sure. We're like, we, we still have to work things out. But, um when they do come in two years, they're going to be blown away because all of a sudden there's this acceleration that's happening on the farm. So, yes, we feel like we've made a lot of mistakes, but in hindsight, I kind of go, no, it was part of the big plan and I just have to trust. Have you watched the movie uh, the, the Biggest Little, biggest little um, Farm? or the little? Okay, it's a documentary. If you just put, plug in Google The Biggest Little Farm or The Little Biggest Farm or whatever... It's 10 years they work and the, the crying and the issues they had, but it was 10 years. So I kind of go, I'm halfway there. I'm, I see, I get goosebumps even thinking about that movie because they had 90,000 snails eating their fruit and, <laughs> and then they figured the ducks would eat that and so they let the ducks out loose and it's one of those incredible stories. So, yeah, that's my farm. It's an incredible story. Um, watch this space. Love it, love it. Look forward to it. And the girls and I had wondered whether you were running ahead with the Nutrition Summit. We didn't know. We thought it might be touch and go because mm -hmm. we're all going to fly up and be a part of it. So we'll keep an eye on, on the space and when you're doing that. So. Yeah. Well, the fact that Queensland at this point hasn't even opened its borders, uh, I have no idea why. That means nobody can fly up. No. Nobody can get into Queensland. And 
um, and I want Zach and I want Sarah and yeah. I want Belinda Fetke, you know. These are three people that have to cross borders and oceans to get to us. Yeah. And, and I know you all want that too. We yeah. don't want them, like we could sit at home and watch them on a summit. It's not but I'd rather, I'd rather just say 2020 was my day, my year off. Yeah. You know, it was my year off. It was my year to spend more time on my farm. It was my year to spend more time with my students. It was my year to educate online, you know, and um, it was my year off and 2021 is going to be incredible. <laughs> it certainly is. It certainly is. Look, we thank you for all the time you've spent with us and, you know, you've devoted your life to educating people and we're very grateful to have um, been in your orbit and we are going to share all about your farm, your school, uh, the Nutrition Academy, the courses you do, the Edible Garden course sounds amazing. And, of course, Changing Habits, you know, your website where um, I think that was one of the first places that I reconnected with you and started buying spices that I knew didn't have lead and heavy metals in them because you'd done research for us. So. And not irradiated. Yes. Yeah. So thank you so much. Um, is there anything you'd like to share with the listeners? I mean, we'll put stuff in the show notes, but would you like to share anything about the courses or maybe the first one that would be a good one to start with to just maybe, you know, get their knowledge going if they're not really aware of all the stuff we've talked about today? You know, I think growing your own food is the most um, like awe-inspiring thing that you can do. Even if you all you've got is a pot and you grow mint. <laughs> Or a herb. It's it's awe-inspiring. Because I, I look at my trees that are on my farm. I can't keep up with the fruit. Um, I picked three boxes of limes and kaffirs and lemons the other day. Um, I give them away because I don't, you know, I, I don't know what else. I can't use them all. Like I've squeezed all the limes and the lemons I'm going to squeeze. So, and I look at those trees and they are flowering again, ready for next year. It's awe-inspiring to watch this happen. So for me, I think the Incredible Edible Garden would be where I would start because what you get with the Incredible Edible Garden, and I might be wrong, but we'll make sure that your people, your listeners get this, is that you have a choice between getting lab to table or you can do the introduction to nutrition course. Mm -hmm. So then you not only have, I'm growing my own food, but I'm learning about nutrition at the same time. And then you can then go on to do our 12-month course on nutrition, which is the um, fundamentals and the applied. And then that allows you to not only help your family, but maybe your community as well and become a leader in your community if that's what you're ready for and that's what you want to do. Um, and have more education about vitalism and mechanism and historical perspectives. And, be, and the whole thing is about being a critical thinker. So that's our education arm. Then our food arm and our protocols and programs. So if anybody wants to do what I did, the fat loss protocol, because they were feeling a little bit like me, <laughs> it was like it, I don't like if I didn't figure that out about weight, I don't know where I'd be right now. I really don't. I, I'm 60 and I'm this year and I I feel I'm more flexible, have better hair, <laughs> better skin than I ever had in my 40s. And wheat was obviously a problem for me all through that. It wasn't until, you know, you, you hit the whispers and then you get the hammer on the head. <laughs> and when the hammer on the head hits you, you kind of go, ooh, I better do something. 
So if anybody wants to do that, that's called the Fat Loss Protocol. And we are doing a challenge starts um, the first Monday of June, and that could be 5th or 6th of June. Um, so prep month is now in May, but we're doing a challenge. So that means everybody starts together. I get on. I, I keep you motivated because it, it's, it's a tough one to do, um, but it is the most rewarding that I've ever done. And some people say to me, oh, Cindy, it was easy. Well, I slept the first three days. If we were talking, I'd just go and fall asleep. <laughs> I fell asleep in a yoga pose. <laughs> so my body was obviously going, oh, thank goodness, she's going to do something. And the first three days, you know, I fell asleep. So, um, yeah, some people get headaches. Um, so it's a detox. Yeah. But that's our program protocol. We're also about to release our new program called The Healthy Keto Way. Um, and that's all about, and then that's, we could talk an hour about the keto way, but we won't. And then we also have the Real Food Reset, I think is still there. And the Real Food Reset is for those um, raw beginners. Somebody who's eaten breakfast cereals, toast, margarine and Vegemite, cheese sandwiches and pasta for dinner with lean, with or lean cuisine or uh, chicken tonight. So if you are doing that, can I recommend you first do the Real Food Reset because you get thrown into that fat loss protocol, oh, <laughs> you're not going to like me at all. <laughs> you're going to go, whoa, <laughs> what did she just do to me? Because when you start detoxing, you will detox big time and um, you need the tools. So I'd rather than start with the, the, the Real Food Reset. And then there's, of course, all our, our beautiful foods. All of our supplements are food. They are not supplements. We only have one extract, and that's the colloidal minerals, and that's humic and fulvic acid, which Zach Bush talks about um, with his product. When I realised his product and my product were very similar, I was like, oh, Zach, you just made my day. I was taking it for minerals. I wasn't taking it for everything he talked about. So that's an Australian product. Um, we don't alkalize it. We don't take um, the fulvic acid. I can't remember which is his, but we leave it as nature brings it to us. Um, whereas he um, takes out one of the acids, I can't remember if it's the fulvic or the humic, and he alkalizes it. Um, and I, I'm, I want to talk to him about why he does that um, because he's got the science behind it, whereas we've just kept it as, as in in whole form. Yeah. That'll be really interesting to hear. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, I think as you've touched on, Cindy, there are numerous future chats I think we could and would love to have um, with you. Um, just so many amazing topics that you've really researched and explored. And, you know, I, I find myself going down many rabbit holes and there's only so many sometimes I can go before I have to pull myself out and, and get focused on something else. Um, but thank you so much for taking the, the time today just to honestly share your knowledge and your message. I know for sure that our listeners um, are just, you know, going to be inspired. They've, you know, you've just empowered them with more knowledge and, and where to find resources. And, you know, this will certainly be of benefit with, you know, the current situation and as we move forward in our new normal. Yeah, yeah. Let's hope people are awakening because that's what, that's my hope is that this, you know, this is a health issue, not a virus issue. We cannot sanitise the world. It's, that's just a ridiculous thing. So people need to pick their health up so that they are not made vulnerable in times like this. You know, the people that are vulnerable are the people that have not been looking after themselves 
for the most part, not all, um, but for the most part are the, the ones with comorbidities such as heart disease, cancer, or diabetes. Um, I'll take cancer out of there. Let's just talk about, you know, metabolic disease, um, insulin resistance, um, you know, lung diseases, that's an issue as well. So when you realise if you're healthy, you have a healthy immune system and COVID-19 will pass in and it'll pass out and you won't even know it. But like, you know, with me being told I had German measles, um, you know, the vaccine for German measles, but my mum doesn't remember me ever having it. So it passed in and passed out of me and I didn't get the symptoms. So we have that ability and we can get lifetime immunity to that. So... I want to thank you three. I just love the three of you. <laughs> I've fallen in love, you know, like because you've got smiling faces, you're here to make a difference. Um, you just you just keep going, keep making that difference because uh, we need more people out there. And the, and the fact that we've got a baby making a difference too. I want to eat the child. But <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so very much. You're, you're just so inspiring. I know yeah. the girls, we're probably going to get off here and go, right, we're taking on the world. Yeah. Thank you for inspiring us. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Oh, it's our pleasure. Thank you again for joining us. You've been listening to Our New Normal. We are pleased you have taken time out of your day to tune in today. As always, if you like this episode or any of our other episodes, Subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen or download our podcasts. If you would like to follow or connect with us anywhere else, we are active on Instagram, Facebook or our website. The links are in the show notes. Unfortunately, liking or following someone on Facebook or Instagram doesn't necessarily bring up their content on our social media feed anymore. So the best way to keep in touch is to subscribe to our emails, which you will find on our website. Also, if you could give back to us by giving us a five-star review, especially on Apple iTunes, we would really appreciate it. It doesn't take more than two minutes. So as you head out today, remember, our new normal is a positive thing. It's an age where we are informed, empowered and in charge of our own health.